Sorry if I intermittently cough or snort during my recordings. I'm getting old, that's my excuse. Whatever. <laughs> um, since I've been Ubering for the last five plus months around San Diego County, homeless, living in my car, um, I started keeping a notebook of ideas that would come to me. And why not, you know? Eric Dollard writes whole books out of his car. So, I was going over my notes for this, um, uh, what do you call it, a Maltese uh, uh, cross? Uh, uh, I don't know. <laughs> a four-armed cross of, um, of the Amman circuit. I was, And I found a page that I had forgotten about, which I haven't been talking about. And it has to do with the transistors. Now, since they are derivative of the original baking soda bo uh, borax diodes from 100 years ago, um, it's possible in a stage of development, a semi-stage, like an, an initial stage, um, before becoming what we recognize as a transistor in which there are three leads and you have a throughput between the, um, uh, what is it, the uh, collector and the emitter, <clears throat> it may have been historically and in terms of simplicity possible that there was a prior stage that in which there were simply two diodes in which the aluminum lead of each is connected together one to the other so that they share this, uh, the same common aluminum lead at that point and then the two other leads in order to create a throughput Instead of thinking in terms of an electrical throughput, such as we envision when we design our transistors, maybe the initial stage of development was a magnetic throughput by magnetically coupling the two canisters together. Because one of my design variations of the borax baking soda diode in use of... I, I mean, I did try to build a few circuits as I was moving out of my apartment five months ago. I didn't get a whole lot done and nothing succeeded because, as Mommy said uh, long ago, just try to start small and build up and don't start big. Unfortunately, I started off with my most developed simulations that... I have no clue how to build them, <clears throat> so naturally, yeah, I did not succeed at getting any results. So I thought I'd start with something simple, and, and so I started focusing on Paul Falstead's ideal transformer, you know, how may that be built, and along the lines, the same lines of Nathan Stubblefield, the use of iron in his coil, so, in his earth battery, so, if the two canisters are magnetically coupled with iron wire that comports with the iron, wind, the iron winding of the barrel coil so that it has the same characteristics of production of magnetic field as does the barrel coil possesses. Now I had an intuition that <clears throat> well let me put it to you this way I'll be very explicit and name names, <laughs> because I'm trying to give a compliment. Um, I petitioned Eric Dollard. I um, prayed to him, shall we say, that I was very sorry that I did not, that I acted like a fool and embarrassed myself in front of him during the, the last conference I went to in 2015. Um, I won't be explicit about that, but I'll leave it at that. And 
Um, I was sorry because of my actions. I did not, um, instead of fostering a relationship with him, I turned aside. Okay, I I, I was a little more explicit, but I'm still trying to be vague (laughs) Um, in my conversation with him in small group. So, in view of that, I petitioned him mentally uh, a few months ago for grace, forgiveness, and I got back a curious response, which had nothing to do with that. (laughs) But in a sense, it was indirectly related because it was a gift, free of charge. The quotation that we get from William Lyne, L-Y-N-E, now deceased, unfortunately, in one of his books, uh, Pentagon Aliens or Space Aliens from the Pentagon, the previous edition, in which he talks about Tesla's special generator, and supposedly he quotes a Dort Jr., whose father, Dort Sr., worked with Tesla in uh, adapting his special generator to their a, few, a small line of their electro-U-boats during World War II, giving them a 30,000-mile range minimum. The Earth's circumference, by the way, is 24,000 miles. <laughs> so, uh, more than once around the planet. Um by in by way of utilizing li- um, compressed air running the special generators stored in liquid air tanks. And so they didn't have to surface and risk bombardment from the enemy or whatever, um, sighting. <laughs> uh, they could recharge their DC battery bank while submerged. They didn't have to surface to get oxygen and air to run their diesel-fired gasoline um, run electro uh, rotary elect, uh, electric generators to recharge the battery bank um, let's see where was I with that so Dort Jr. Cited, uh, gave William Lyne a few t- tidbits namely the basis for the trimetal generator the properties of aluminum iron and copper and I already covered in prior three recording about the copper, how it translates into the Russian sometimes, and back into the English as being the active, which is exactly what Dort Jr. said. He called it the active. So we want to minimize the use of copper in this Amon circuit because the only purpose of copper, ideally, is to magnify reactants, to, to magnify transients, like when you first turn on the circuit or when it uh, whatever. <laughs> Transient surges that are of high voltage characteristic that come from the ether as far as I'm concerned because time goes backwards as far as microcap 12 is concerned. But I hold it something else and I already did a recording about that. Be that as it may, it's an effect without a cause that's not tied to accountability such as conservation of energy and we can it can self-amplify. It's, it can self-compound, self-compoundedly act like a self-compounding interest rate in which you don't need any more energy inputted into the circuit necessarily unless you're trying to regulate a input frequency, then you need a modicum of input voltage, like a microvolt or something, to have an input frequency that's constant. But it depends on the situation. But you don't in in largesse consideration, you don't need any input of energy to run the circuit anymore because now the circuit supplies it. Because this surge We are taking advantage of it not to lose it. We capture it and we self-oscillate it, kind of like a laser chamber in which it builds itself. It doesn't merely um, become more coherent. Um, 
In fact, nothing about its coherence changes. It simply builds up amplitude and sometimes frequency, depending on whether or not we have an input frequency or not. Uh, let's see. So we want to minimize co- the use of copper and use copper only on the voltage area of the circuit that we want the electrostatic to dominate over current. Meanwhile, we have the iron dominating in the circuit for various reasons I've already covered to magnify current, or magnetism I should say, over voltage, over electrostatic force. Now, that means that if we want to do any coupling between two canisters of a half transistor each, uh, linking them together so that they can function as a in their entirety as a transistor as we know it, if we are going to magnetically couple them, it has to be iron wire. It cannot be copper. Now, I want to do a little aside here to give more rationalization behind this emphasis of why it must be iron wherever we have magnetism and current and never copper. <clears throat> we go back to the days of Oliver Heaviside, which precedes Nathan Stubblefield, who precedes the Amon device. It's all linked together, which of course precedes Tesla's Pierce era of 1931, 10 years later. All four are linked together because of their view of copper versus iron. Implied or inferred, if not explicit. It's implied, if you think about it, <laughs> in this way, in this manner similar to the way I, I think about it. And I go back to a fellow by the name of Mr. White House, just like the place in Washington, D.C., but that's his last name. He was hired by a company. There were various private companies laying um, it, um, <sighs> transatlantic telegraph cable in those days, and they were all attempting to get a telegraph message across the Atlantic, and they were all failing. Now, White House came up with a stupid idea. He was ignorant, okay, but it was stupid. <clears throat> in which he said, let's just raise the voltage. He fried the cable, and his company promptly fired him. <laughs> End of him. <laughs> and which Oliver Heaviside, it was still a void now of a lack of a solution, and Oliver Heaviside had to fill that void, and he did. Now, <clears throat> this is very significant because this is still the way we do things. Probably owing to J.P. Morgan and his battle over Wardenclyffe with Tesla, over copper. He, the insistence that we have to still keep doing things in copper. That implies, or shall I say has the repercussion of emphasizing copper and de-emphasizing iron because iron even then was not in evidence for transmission purposes. Um, continentally uh, over the landmass of the Americas, over, well, North America, more explicitly. Um, even though the solution was already sitting submerged under the Atlantic Ocean! Dummies! Oh, God, even Tesla overlooked it. Um, well, whatever. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. I hate it when there are mistakes made compoundedly, repeatedly, by human error again and again. We keep making the same mistake collectively. Oh, we're so dim sometimes. Well, I can be too. <laughs> Please point them out to me so I can be humbled. Um, <laughs> I always deserve to be humbled. Um, let's see. So, due to J.P. Morgan's insistence, we now... Ha- have this added incentive to always think in terms of copper, and of course, Berkeley Spice family of simulators presumes that for all of its coils. 
that you are going to use copper only for when you wind your coils. Unfortunately. <laughs> so, that creates this persistence that magnetism will always be lost. And uh, this is another aside I have to make that, oh, we cannot pass DC through a uh, transformer, only AC can be passed. Why? Because you have a surge at the beginning of every half cycle of an alternating current. Duh. (laughs) Oh, well. (laughs) And that surge is voltage dominating over current. And so you're really transferring voltage across the core of the transformer. You're not transferring magnetism because you keep losing it. Ah! So... An ideal transformer is one that conserves against loss of DC in the core when any coil tries to transfer it to the other coil. It's a question of conserve against loss. That's the only reason why they don't pass DC. They're erroneously defined in terms of the they cannot pass DC when in reality they cannot conserve against the loss of DC in the core. That's what it amounts to. Sorry for the asides, but they are all linked together, all of these problems in electrical uh, engineering theory. (laughs) I'm sorry to say. They're all linked together. It's the same problem manifesting in different ways. So, when we couple the two semi or half transistors of maybe the first stage of development of the transistor by individual inventors that never made it to either commercial market or the public view, so they were long since forgotten, and it took the commercialization of the transistor during World War II for us to finally collectively learn about them and retain the memory collectively. This semi-development of using two diodes electrically connected at their anodes, their aluminum anodes, And they are either using, in this instance, copper as the cathode or iron as the cathode. We have to somehow create throughput. Well, how are we going to do that? The easiest way is to magnetically couple by by wrapping either iron wire around each of these two canisters using the same piece of wire or, God forbid, (laughs) oh dear, we have to use copper in the... No! No, no. See, this is the point. We use iron in both instances when we want to magnetically couple them. Now, by using the same piece of uh, iron wire wrapped around both. Why? Because I'm getting to the next uh, point of this. (laughs) When I petitioned Eric Dollard for forgiveness, this is what came back to me. That the quotation of William Lyne Quoting Dort Jr., for every 200 pounds added to Tesla's special generator, one horsepower is increased at the output. I'm paraphrasing because that's not the exact wording, but I prefer mine wording. Quite frankly, it sounds uh, more elegant, more terse and compact. So, and more (laughs) readily understandable. Huh? What? (laughs) So, the... um, it's presumed that this 200 pounds of iron mass is magnetically coupled by way of the fact that the special generator is bolted to the floor of the DC battery room of the Electra U-boat. And that coupling engages the core, the two horseshoe cores of Tesla's special generator, which you don't find out too much about in um, William Lyne's discussion but you will find out about in Thomas Comerford Martin's 
text entitled uh, the, the, something like the, the Inventions, the Writings, and something else of Nikola Tesla. He, unfortunately, I think, is what led to the fire of 1895 of Tesla's lab, which is, as far as I'm concerned, arson to hide the theft. Um, he published his book in 1894. He went to the lecture in 1893 in the agricultural building of the uh, World's Fair that Tesla was showing off various things, including his special generator. And so you can read the last chapter of Thomas Comer Ford Martin's book to find that out. It's on archive.org. Um, it's the last chapter. And there is something missing, the, numer the denominator of the fraction per second in which his uh, special generator oscillated at. Now, one copy has it blanked out. Another copy, somebody hand-drew in a quarter of a second. But William Lyons says it was a sixteenth of a second when he was interviewed by Paul Scarzo um, on the topic of Tesla's special generators and also the electromechanical water meter that he believes Tesla invented. Whatever. Be that as it may, I won't get into that argument because that's another sidebar that's unnecessary for this discussion. Anyway... Um, so everything was destroyed, and regardless of who stole the stuff out of uh, his lab, the Germans acquired it and worked on it for whatever length of time they could, and according to William Lyne, that wasn't good enough for their usage of some of their technology, of that te stolen technology during World War II, so they sent Werner von Braun over to discuss with a mentor, have become mentored by Tesla for two years between 36 and 38 in New Mexico. Okay. So, what is this business about the mass of the 200 pounds of iron? I always assumed it was just a glob of iron. You know, just go out and find yourself some iron that can perform a perpetual motion holder experiment, namely, um, encourage eddy currents instead of discouraging them, and uh, in, um, retain a DC force, uh, oriented uh, magnetic force, if it is so engineered to do so, it will retain it when you turn off the power. In other words, be good for a PMH experiment. So, <clears throat> what is it? And the thought came back in response to my petition. God knows where it came from. I'm assuming it came from Eric, but I don't know. So I'm giving him credit anyway. <laughs> it might have come back from Tesla himself because he has reincarnated, but I won't say who he is. <laughs> I have met him, and he's the reason why I started self-teaching myself on simulators instead of just speculating wildly without anything to go on whatsoever, except by a few bionic circuits and psionic circuits that I've already built. <laughs> about the only thing I've built. What is about this mass of iron? It's surface area. It's not about the mass. Tesla left that out. Oh, why not? He's not a scientist. He's not going to give away his trade secrets. He's going to keep a few secrets to himself and die with them. So I'm giving you what this other source gave me. It's the surface area of that 200 pounds of iron that makes all the difference to its functionality with regard to that quote. But it's applicable to other situations. And I suspect that the iron wire coupling these two semi-transistors could be linked to a mass of iron to gain benefit thereby. If surface area of that iron is taken into account. Now, there are two aspects that I was given along with this thought. It was all done at once to this uh, 200 pounds of iron business. 
One has to do with inductance and the other has to do with capacitance. So both are, are implied or inferable from this quotation if it's interpreted properly that it's a, uh, the surface area that matters. Namely, when it was applied in the format of uh, coupling or magnetically coupling or bolt by way of bolting the special generator to the DC uh, battery room of the floor of the Electra U-boat, they were engaging the inductance of the U-boat shell, which is round. It's elliptical. So it has inductance. Furthermore, it has surface area, which is already capacitance with the surrounding environment and with the internal environment. So in a sense, it's a single plate, a floating plate, in which it's dielectric, where all of its voltage is going to be stored, is inside the vessel and outside the vessel. Now, William Lyne kind of, kind of, sort of, alluded to that outside when he claimed that the purpose of that coupling was had nothing to do with magnetism. It had to do with grounding out the circuitry to earth ground via or through the ocean as an in-between medium. He was, you know, he had a, a little bit of truth there. He was, but, you know, he told me in an email, he doesn't know how these things work. He just speculates the best he can. What else can we do until we build one and find out, right? <clears throat> so this little insight takes that idea further and completes it. And I hope you agree. <laughs> it certainly puts a little perspective on that quotation that William Lyne makes of, Willi of uh, Nikola Tesla. Via Dort Jr. <laughs> um, so this is another reason why we have to exclusively, in this circuit, not in general, but in this circuit I'm speaking of, all electrical connections having to do with our desire to emphasize magnetism and thus current over voltage. We have to do the opposite the way everybody else thinks and not think strictly in terms of, oh, I want to reduce, reduce resistance. So I'm going to use silver wire, maybe, if I can afford it. Or I'm going to use silver uh, plated copper wire or copper clad aluminum wire in the, in the audio industry because I, I want the low resistance of the copper wherein where the uh, vibrations, that, especially the higher frequencies, are going to uh, um, congregate in the outer perimeter of the wire where the copper plating is. No, you don't want to think in terms of simple resistance because iron is six times more resistant to the flow of current than is copper. Sorry to say, I looked it up. <laughs> and it's, it can certainly discourage people from the use of iron winding. But that's not the purpose here. The purpose here is the other functionality that I've already covered in prior recording. So, <clears throat> because this is not part of the circuit per se, it strictly has to do with the formation of a, an entire transistor out of two semi-transistors in the early stage of development of the transistor we have the opportunity, I suspect, I'm willing to, to guess, estimate, that we can take advantage of this quotation of uh, Tesla of 200 pounds of iron and couple this magnetic coupling between the two semi-transistors to a nice large iron mass of, of um, suitable surface area, suitable shape, geometry, to create inductance and mass. But how thin can you make it? Well, if you, we take the example of a U-boat, an electro-U-boat, as our example, we have a certain proportionality between surface area and mass of the hull. 
I don't know what it is. I haven't looked it up. But if we if we apply that and scale it down, that's nice, but we need more surface area, don't we? So in other words, the 200 pounds of iron means absolutely zippity-doo-dah. It merely signifies how much surface area is already resides on the outer and inner surfaces of the hull of the electro-U-boat. That's it. So you can throw out, do the conversion between 200 pounds of iron to the uh, surface area and what is the inductance of that electro-U-boat shell, the shell of that electro-U-boat, and that's what you're left with. And that is what you play with. And forget about the 200 pounds of iron because that's a distraction. (laughs) and an unnecessary diversion. But hey, if you want to keep secrets, that's one way to do it. So I've said enough. I don't want to repeat myself because I might get lost in the muddle. I've forgotten already what I've said. (laughs) And I hope this helps elucidate to you another aspect of this circuit and the way people thought about 100 to 140 years ago in the days of Oliver Heaviside, you know, the 1880s. This is what the Amman circuit springs out of, is the 1880s mentality. And we've lost that. And it's high time we we regain it. Now, Eric Dollar already kind of encouraged me when I had these insights. It encur- he encouraged me to think along these lines when he made that recording with you and Adrian Marsh. And he said, oh, we got to have iron wire connecting the chassis of these various units because blah, blah, blah. And that reminded me, oh, wow, thank you, Eric, for reinforcing that idea I've already had about iron. But um, it helps because... Um, well, it helps simply. <laughs> we have to revive this use of iron wherein it's appropriate. You know, it all depends on the circuit. Oh, I'm sorry. To complete this thought. Because we think strictly in terms of copper, and all of our, all of our circuits then are voltage-oriented, in which we think we have to supply the maximum voltage to supply power to the load, plus extra for losses. Oops. Because we no longer think in terms of iron. We think exclusively in terms of copper, in which it's a voltage-oriented manner of conveying power through a, a transferring, an electrically coupled transferring medium, such as our copper wire. And that's very unfortunate. Because it encourages people to believe in the conservation of energy as a law instead of as an executive order that becomes self-fulfilling only if we believe it's a law. When in reality it's an executive order. Because it becomes self-fulfilling. Oh, if you think it's a law, then you're going to supply the maximum voltage because you're not thinking about conserving against loss of magnetism. It's really, it's a composition of errors that really is in terms of an archetype, is just one. And it's a generic pandemic problem among electrical engineers and the physicists who encourage it, and the electrical engineers who encourage it. It's really... And it it really means that poor Oliver Heaviside doesn't get credit where credit is due, because that's where all of this starts out at. And we somehow lost it at some point afterwards. And it really bothers me. It irks me. Because we really need a a posthumously uh, a knighting. Uh, He was never made a a knight, was he, in the English realm? He needs, he, he deserves it. He deserves it. 
he needs to be knighted, along with uh, Charles Proteus Steinmetz. And I suspect Eric Dollard as well, but he doesn't have English uh, citizenship and he probably doesn't want to be knighted anyway because <laughs> he's not into that sort of thing. Fine. But, you know, these people who keep putting us, steering us back onto the path of proper awareness of electrodynamic theory really need to be thanked for what they've done and, and contributed. And so have you, Aaron Murakami. I mean, all of it. Jim Murray, Paul Babcock, you've all contributed to my conceptualization of the basic theory behind electrodynamics. But this area of magnetism is really floundering, for lack of a better word. Now, I must admit that that solution of Oliver Heaviside was removed, I think it was 1956, if I'm not mistaken, and replaced with repeaters that boosted the signal to go across the Atlantic, the, uh, along the telegraph cable. There may have been other reasons why those repeaters were put in there, maybe to keep us ignorant, you know? Because people, they realized we were wising up in the 50s, post-World War II, and we should be kept dumb. So we can't use that method anymore, that method of that they uh, came up with um, that was an improvement over Oliver Heaviside's suggestion. After he did his math, properly modeling the situation, he decided, oh, let's put iron filings in the insulation. And people said, we can do better than that. We can wrap the copper core with an iron magnetically uh, magnetic tape. And thus, permaloy tape came into being. Well, I bought some from Russia, and it flakes, flakes of... Uh, iron filings like crazy and so I gave up trying to want to use it and then when I measured the magnetic field of VHS um, tape from back in the long day of VCR uh, um, recording it has practically no magnetism whatsoever in terms of refrigerator magnet testing uh, at any rate so um, I don't know <laughs> if, if we can make our own um, transatlantic telegraph cable uh, solution using uh, available materials without creating a mess on the one hand uh, or to do it correctly or to do it incorrectly uh, and have a nice clean um, workbench. I don't know. <laughs> but And then insulation was placed on top of the uh, iron tape, magnetic tape wrapping that went around the core. Um, any case... But I, Nathan Stubblefield did his own version, see? So there are different ways of doing the same thing, you know? Anyway, I've said enough, I think. I don't want to say anything more. The reason why I can get away with claiming that, at least in this circuit alone, we can get away with exclusively using iron for the purposes of electrical, electrically connecting the transference of current and thus the magnetism that it then provides in a coil. The reason for that <clears throat> goes along with the reasoning of why is copper only used for the magnification of the electrostatic force. Well, I already covered that with Oliver Heaviside and the transatlantic cable problem, um, but it's, it has more to do with the nature of electricity. Now, when I was writing my provisional patent back in 2019, I figured out that, and I may have covered this already, but I guess it's worth explaining in this context, again, repeating it. Ohm's law is not Ohm's law. It does not exist. It's a fiction. It has to be translated into joules, into energy, not watts. 
be with the addition of time as an element. Plus, we have to realize that current is a mathematical notation shorthand to make the technician's job easier, but in reality it does not exist. Because the only thing that, res that exists is voltage applied, which is an electrostatic force. It's something static, let's say, or not, but it's applied, it's real, it's real power, and then we get reactive voltage as a consequence of various impedances and resistances within a framework of time. And it's that latter part, excluding the application of voltage, which is what we call current, which what we call magnetism. It's, a dyna dyna it's the dynamic aspect of electricity. And the application of voltage is not, or it may be. But regardless, it is a reactance, which means it's complicated. It's not simple real power anymore. And when Ohm's Law is taught to beginning students to make it nice and simplified, they never teach the more complicated version I just explained just now. To the more advanced students, they continue to lie and promote Ohm's Law as if it's the only way to describe the situation, but it is not theoretically correct. It has the theory all wrong. Magnetism is a consequence of the dielectric. It does not exist in and of itself. It is like a reverb or an echo. It's the resultant. But not to diminish its importance in any way, but just to put things into proper context. Because a beat frequency or a harmonic is very crucial. It's um, sometimes the only way things get done. Even though all you have are the two parent frequencies creating the daughter beat frequency. Yet that beat frequency is a mathematical fiction. It does not exist separate from the two parent frequencies. It's totally dependent on the coexistence at all times, the simultaneous coexistence of the two parent frequencies in order to exist. So it's a consequence. It's not an entity in and of itself because it's never inserted or injected into the situation. It results from the situation. And this is very significant that we have we demarcate cause from effect when we deal with Ohm's law, the proper definition and interpretation of Ohm's law, that it's really talking about both cause and effect in one equation, and that's why we've really messed it up by overly simplifying it, by creating this fictional idea of current. So the only thing that exists is voltage, uh, impedance, resistance, and time. There, in, in essence... In terms of causality, there's no such thing as magnetism. It does not exist as a causality. It only exists as a resultant to the dynamic aspect of reactive voltage. And so this is why we can say voltage squared divided by resistance equals watts is not really correct, but it's a better version of Ohm's law than voltage times current equals watts because it's at least getting closer to the truth of the matter, but it's still not there yet because it looks like voltage squared, when in reality it's not. And it looks like simple resistance is dividing into that, which it is not. And it looks like there's no time involved, which is impossible. <laughs> so, when you're dealing with a changing environment, there's got to be the element of time. So, you know, there's so many things wrong going on with our perception of electrical reality. It's unbelievable. But I have to state this because you might get the wrong impression about magnetism. And what are the significant sides of this circuit? The only significant side is the copper side. The iron is simply there 
to add various benefits that I've already covered. And it's only voltage that is being magnified. Yet, primarily as a causality, yet, because magnetism is the resultant, it feeds back into the voltage by way of the aluminum connection between the two halves of the circuit, which, being parametric, is not going to want to carry a, a current across. It'll expel the magnetic field, because that's what paramagnetism does, into its environment. And it becomes a field effect at that point, instead of an electrical connection at that point phenomenon. Because we only want strictly voltage in that aluminum connection between the two gates, because that's all that's going on there. And so we don't want current. We want to minimize it. We want to expel it and get it out of there. Because the electrical connection itself is not supposed to encourage the, the formation or the utilization of current, because that's just kind of, I don't know, it's, it's, it's erroneous or not relevant. It's not pertinent to the gating effect of the two transistors. They All they need is vary, varying voltage to open and close the gate. That's it. And so that's why the aluminum has to be there. But due to Mitko Gorgiev and his ideology of extension of a conductive medium out along a single open transmission wire to some distance um, in order to create migratory current in order to effectively complete Ohm's law as it's simplistically defined so that we don't just have the electrostatic force we also include the current the magnetic force so that we get an electrodynamic taking place even though current is being de-emphasized and voltage is being emphasized but in the case of the aluminum it's being exported or expelled out from its aluminum material um, and the surface area is increased at the end point of those open transmission lines, two of them in opposite directions, opposed, getting away from each other to reduce the likelihood of ionic transfer between those two wires, ending in a surface area that may or may not be dielectrically coded to enhance their interaction with their environment. Do we want to do that? I don't know. <laughs> uh, maybe not. I'm not sure. Um, at least it would store. See, now that's the other thing. No, it would enhance storage. It is a floating plate, and they have been separated from each other to minimize their interaction with each other so that they can act independent of each other and thus help the formation of four-phase current in this uh, four-phase power in this uh, scenario, this circuit design. Um, but they may need to store their voltage and not just be a surface area, and that might be why they need to be coated with a dielectric, so that the dielectric can store that voltage. But each dielectric of each two of the two aluminum plates storing voltage independent of each other within the framework of time, so that their two phases can not necessarily coincide, but they may coincide because they are electrically connected to the same aluminum wire. So, because of the paramagnetic quality of aluminum, maybe that helps foster that they be in opposition. And maybe this is part of the process of encouraging four-phase power within the overall design of this circuit. It's possible. I don't know. Um, but 
I'm speculating based because I go on what I was given and then I backtrack, I reverse engineer from that my speculation of what's going on to help you understand it. But it's my speculation. So maybe you come up with something better. But it has nothing to do with the information I received. It's simply my interpretation. I mean, there were certain things I was given that had to do with it. And one of them was four-phase current. So I don't, you know, know how the circuit encourages four-phase current. So I'm speculating how and why um, two floating plates that are um, extended out from the aluminum wire are necessary, not one. Because I made the mistake of eliminating one of the two and then thinking, oh, that's ridiculous. Why have one, just one? Why not get rid of it altogether? So I just got rid of them and then I was corrected and the two were put back into place. So this is my speculation as to why, you know, trying to understand this as best I can, given the fact that I really don't have any experiential knowledge to speak of when it comes to the amplification of power in electrodynamic theory. I really don't know much. Um, okay. So I hope this recording helps, I hope, in some way or another.